And we are live with our 47th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome back for episode 47. Uh, this week, we are joined by, once again, by the great and humble Kevin Cody. Uh, we're excited to have him on to talk about mobile stuff and uh, mobile app testing specifically. Uh, both Kevin and I play in that space quite a bit, so it'll be fun to get into those things. But before we get started on that, let's go with uh, the AppSec Minute, uh, or AppSec 20 Minutes, as Kevin was calling it, I guess. Is that is that <laughs> what we're really going <laughs> to... We're going to go with now because it, it does take us longer than a minute. We'll, we'll try and keep it short. Ken's got something from our course, uh, the Seth and Ken's Excellent Adventures in Secure Code Review that we wanted to talk about this week uh, just to help those of you that are actually into code reviews that are doing that on a daily basis. It's one of the things that we teach, but it's also you know just kind of a straightforward. It's a part of our methodology. So Ken, you want to take that away? Sure, sure. And first of all, let me say to Kevin, Congrats on being the first guest to three-peat. Got a couple, a couple that have been on two shows, but you, I think you're the first guest to do three shows. So. Oh, Crap, awesome. sh- shut it down. Shut it down. We can't do that yet. Does that mean, does that mean I, I might get a sticker or a t-shirt in the mail? <laughs> Did you not get a t-shirt? No, he hasn't gotten one yet. You're, you're on the list. We, we were talking about it last week, Kevin. I'm sorry. That's on me. Yeah, I think we're going to split West and East Coast is the, what we came to came to, to to decide, and I'll I'll ship to the East Coast. He'll ship to the West Coast. So, All right, so well, it's I'll, Ken's fault. You blame Ken. You yeah, you're on PA, so it's definitely on my, on my bad. <laughs> so, anyways, um, yeah, back to this. Back to the uh, the, the app segment. Like so. Um, one of the things, as Seth mentioned in the course that we talked about, one of the many things, um, one strategy specifically that we talk about when doing code reviews is creating a list of routes. So let me share the screen here. And present to everyone. That should work. Cool. Hopefully if you, people can see it. Um, so this is kind of a typical, this is from our slides uh, in the course. This is the typical sort of layout an application has, web application has. So you've got a, you've got a route or an endpoint, like say forward slash home, for instance, in the URL. Um, so you've got a defined route and that goes next to a place that the um, logic is going to be processed, both uh, authorization, usually authorization, hopefully authorization first, and then on to like a controller action, um, which will become a little bit clearer here in a second. But basically, once uh, once your request hits this route, the application says, okay, let's enforce some authorization logic. And then, okay, uh, let's go ahead and process whatever the request had, like whatever parameters it had, whatever content it had, and uh, do something based off that. And in some cases, that's calling the data store. So like a model, um, other times that's, rendering a view. It could be doing up a queued job, as you see there, like sending out emails or whatever the case may be. Um, but that's the general sort of flow. So to make that kind of checklist of here's all the endpoints that I want to check. And let me be very clear. In our course, we recognize that, that you might have a two-week test and you won't be able to do like 10,000 routes 
um, each one of them analyzed, right? There's other strategies for that, but that's not what this is about. This is about the, uh, about mapping, about creating these routes. So I'm gonna switch to slide four, sorry, uh, 40. This is an example of like a Rails application and when you run the rake, rake routes command, so if you have all the gems installed for this uh, Rails app, um, here we're just showing using Rails Go. Uh, but when you run rake routes or Rails routes now in the newer versions of Rails, you'll get um, specifically some important bits here are, go to the next slide, the verb. So the HTTP verb, so get, put, post, whatever, uh, forward slash, whatever the path is, right? That's the HTTP path. Here it's forgot underscore password. And then you'll see the controller and the action. The controller would be password underscore resets underscore controller uh, dot RB and the action inside of it, meaning the method defined inside of it before get password. So that's how Rails does it. Uh, one other example is showing how Django does it for our Python fans. Uh, that should be, I think, slide 52. Python fans, isn't that everybody, Ken? <laughs> Yeah, everybody in security seems to love Python. So, but wait, 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 I thought I thought Rails was just a better version of Python. Where, where have I heard that before? I don't. No, know. that that episode got deleted. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so this is this is using manage pi and the show underscore URLs command, and then you get the same sort of um, setup. The difference is, is that weirdly enough, in Django, get and post can be aren't necessarily defined in the route, right? They're defined inside of the actual action. Um, so you'll say like, if the request is a post or if it's a get, do some stuff. So it's a little bit weirder. It's a little bit weird, uh, but it's still nevertheless pretty helpful in creating a list of endpoints. And then again, the point here, to be very clear, the point is that when we create this, this map, we create these, this list of routes, what we're trying to figure out is, okay, if I have this HTTP request, where does it go? What authorization is called? And then from there, I need to like trace the entire request end to end. So we call that source to sync, the source being your HTTP request and the sync being the last place that code is executed. And wherever it branches, it branches out into in between those points. So Seth, I'm gonna go ahead and, uh, stop the screen share. Um, but is yeah. there anything you want to add to that? Yeah. Uh, you know, basically the one thing I, I mean, Ken showed some good examples of how to do that with both Rails and Django. The thing that you need to realize in most of the other languages, if we're talking like Java Spring or even, you know, .NET, like other, other frameworks and languages, it's not that easy. Right, you know, some of the modern ones have made it a lot easier. Rails and Django's or Django are very structured, so it's easy to pull that out. Um, but even something as simple as like Node applications, you're going to be searching through an IDE for dot, you know, app dot get or app dot post to actually find those routes. It's it, it takes a little bit longer in those cases, but it's still something that you've got to do early on in a code review rather than later, so you understand how the how the application is actually written, and we can. <clears throat> I mean, we'll have other AppSec minutes where we talk about the different portions of our kind of like, you know, code review framework uh, to help you out. Uh, but in general, there's, you know, there's, there is a kind of a defined process that you have to come up with on how to distill an application before you dive into finding vulnerabilities. Um, and this, this is a good portion of it, right? This is kind of a good intro to what mapping is. Yeah, I mean, we'll add, a, sometimes we'll add features and there might be like 10 or, 
15 endpoints or something added. And so then that's where that really comes in, especially if you're just doing like incremental um, reviews that can be, for me, that's super helpful for being thorough, uh, both knowing every file that changed, but also like being able to trace from route to, from tra trace from source to sync through the route. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, Kevin, you know, since we have you on, right. I, I know you've done some code review in your day. Um, right. It, it's kind of, what is the process that you go about when you're mapping out a, an application? What is it that you do? Yeah. Well, let me, let me say this from, from a different angle. So um, this is one of the things, absolutely one of the first things I do from a, um, a, a gray box or, or black box test as well. Right. So for instance, if it's mobile, first thing I'll do is I'll go and grab the APK decompile the APK, figure out where, where the, the routes in, in Kotlin or, or uh, you know, Java are for that specific application. One easy way to do it is just to invoke the application via a proxy, figure out what a request looks like, and then just grep through the code to find that. And then that will usually lead you to what other requests will look like in that specific code base, right? And then just use some grep foo and just spit out all the rest, all the all the methods, all the all the endpoints, right? And then I'll add it to like auth matrix and burp or something like that and just invoke them all, see if anything comes back unauthenticated or missing function level access control or something like that. And the same goes for the website, especially in today's SPA world, right? Use something like Link Finder um, and parse out the JavaScript, which is usually unauthenticated, and get all of the routes that are embedded in the JavaScript there and go out and invoke those all unauthored, et cetera, et cetera. Jason Haddock speaks to like Link Finder and some of those tools in his um, the, his uh, big talk. I forget, what was it? The, the Blog Hunter's methodology. Exactly, yeah. yeah but yeah. Uh, no, I, yeah, I can't tell you the number of times like on a web app, right, in SPA, you find all the admin links that are just embedded in the, in the main blob that they send down to you because it has to be a part of it, right? So even if you're not authenticated, you can at least check to make sure that those are restricted because oftentimes they're not. So anyway. Yep. But I do, yeah. I mean, I, obviously, white box, if I have the code, I go through the same the same thing that you guys just, just stated, right? But it's also um, you know helpful to know that you don't necessarily need the full code base to get all those routes, even if your specific user or your specific app um, uh, permission doesn't, you don't think you have the permission to see all those routes, you still may have a listing of all those routes if they're in, in the code base or if they're exposed in JavaScript somewhere or something like that. So, you know what I hadn't thought about until you just said this, but that's especially useful in those cases where like somebody will ask for a black box, you know, API test. Uh, those are, I'm rolling my eyes at that obviously, but uh, black box, black box API test or a yeah. And you don't necessarily know like all the routes you're supposed it's a black box. You're just like supposed to figure that out. Uh, I had not thought before about um, maybe looking for a mobile client that might call that API. Um, yeah, actually I actually have a, a blog post that's queued up in, in uh, my, my work queue that should be published uh, any week. Now it talks about not so much from a, a um, audit standpoint or an assessment standpoint, but just from like, I tinker at home constantly and I use things like Siri shortcuts or if that, then this and, 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 and different things like that. And I would like to basically find ways to get all my million devices to talk to each other or try to invoke different, different things that may not be in a published API. So I talk about a lot of this stuff just from a, like, how can I make this thing that I own give me the data that I want out of it? 
right? So I have like a Sense IoT monitor that's in my in my panel box, and I have a connected I/O board that's in my security panel box. I have all these different things, but they're all in different ecosystems. And some use HomeKit, some use Google uh, Home or whatever their uh, you know Nest and all that stuff. And then there's Ring, and they use all the Amazon stuff. And I like to get them all to talk together. So um, yeah, that's it's also useful for that. Not so much from a security perspective, but just like finding undocumented APIs so that you can use your thing, right? Yeah, I, I, yeah. On the dynamic side, definitely like watching the traffic has always been the start. Right? You know, I mean, we were talking code review, like what Ken was bringing up, but from a like a dynamic assessment perspective. Um, like a lot of the same principles still apply, right? The way that we go about a dynamic assessment, the first thing you got to do is figure out what that application is doing in the mobile assessment world as well. Um, and, you know, running everything through Burp, building out a sitemap, building out an understanding of everything that you possibly can before you dive into, hey, this looks like it's uh, cross-site scripting or SQL injection, and I'm going to go start running down paths. Uh, makes all the difference in the world. Because if you understand how an application typically makes a request or what it's what it's actually trying to do, it's a lot easier to distill that and figure out whether or not it's a false positive, whether or not you're you know running down some path that you shouldn't or rabbit hole. Um, so you've got to be very careful about where you spend your time, especially in the time back time boxed assessments that or the that world that we live in, Kevin. Because it's like 80 hours to actually understand, completely understand an application is really just not not enough time. You're never going to have the same understanding as a developer does. You just won't. So you got to be able to distill that quickly and figure out what's important to you from a security perspective. And that's a, that's a great you know recommendation on the APIs is hey, figure out what a mobile app is doing, or you know rip it apart, actually do some decompiling. Uh, and we'll dig into that a little bit when we get into the mobile stuff, like the tools that you're using for that, because that's, I, I think that'll be interesting to our listeners as well. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So AppSec Minute only took 15 minutes this week. Sweet. We're improving. We didn't now. say how many minutes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just AppSec. Start, we'll call yeah. AppSec Minutes. AppSec Minutes. There you go. <laughs> Sweet. So we have Kevin Cody, obviously, back on the show. Uh, Kevin. Thanks for joining us once again. Uh, you know, apparently we can beg you every six months or so to come on, and that works out okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, I think so. You said you said I'm I'm one of the few three timers. I think Corsi and Stefan may be three timers as well. So I'm just trying to keep pace with them. You know, that's all. <laughs> that might be that, that's that that's true. But they doubled up. For, <laughs> you know, I think the first two times. So I, I don't know if that counts. Well, if Stefan's listening, I'll, I'll uh, go turn off all my lights and hide under a blanket for the rest of this, this show. So, well, yeah, you couldn't tell it was him that week anyway, so <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't matter. So he was sitting in a you know a public parking lot somewhere on his LTE connection. Yeah. Uh, so tonight uh, we wanted to talk to Kevin a little bit about OWASP Mobile, uh, what he's doing on the mobile app assessment side just the different tools that are being used, uh, what, you know, especially within the last six months. So the, the biggest thing that we wanted to start with, uh, what Ken put into the, the schedule for tonight is the OWASP Mobile Top 10. Um, so <clears throat> Mobile Top 10, uh, this is their equivalent of just the OWASP Top 10, but for mobile devices, you know, 
first of all, like before we kind of dig into the specifics of what's on it, Kevin, like what it, what are your what is your general impression of the OWASP Mobile Top Ten? How useful is it to you? Um, yeah, give us your feelings there. So my my immediate feeling is something that we kind of already teased at already, which is such a huge portion of our applications in mobile applications in general is what the APIs are doing, what the HTTP connection, you know, it's, it's basically a, a thick client app uh, for those of us who have tested thick client apps, right? So um, especially in, in the mobile world, if it's using HTTP, MQTT, whatever, um, obviously that's, that's a huge portion of the application. So when you look at, especially if it's HTTP, right? So many web volumes, are one-to-one -one map to mobile volumes, right? So, um, you know, that's that's my first thing, right? So if you're not, if you're looking at for mobile top 10 and you're not familiar with the web top 10 or, or the, the top 10, right? That's the first place you, you want to familiarize yourself with as long as there is some type of, of, of API, HTTP connection or, or whatnot. But other than that, um, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't say the last revision of the mobile top 10 was 2016. So it's, it's, yeah. um, and before that, I believe it was 2013. So it's probably on the path of being revised. If not, um, I really can't harp on it because I'm not part of that project. And so I, I don't want to sit here and say, you know, it's stale or anything like that. Um, because I, I, you know, last week we had, you guys had uh, uh, Dan, Daniel uh, on and he um, he did, just did finish the top 10 IoT stuff. And at least he can say he was part of that project, right? He was putting in the hours, he's putting in the effort. I am not part of the mobile top 10, so I'm certainly not here to, to, to bag on anyone. But uh, I mean, overall, I'm, the biggest thing, right, is just making sure that you're thorough with the web top 10 and looking at the rest of the, the, the mobile top 10 and um, you know, just familiarizing yourself with what the thick client portions or the, uh, the um, iOS or Android or whatever mobile uh, OS you're using and, and getting that rest of that coverage, which is basically the rest of that top 10. So, yeah. If anyone knows if they're working on an, another version, um, let us know. We'll we'll make sure Kevin volunteers for. <laughs> I, yeah, I, we'll we'll talk to Matt. We'll to Sorrow. We'll we'll volunteer you for that that effort, Kevin. Right. That's what you that's know, what I, you need. I really wouldn't be against. I run the Pittsburgh OWASP chapter. Uh, we do a few, you know, uh, meeting a quarter. Or I try to do a little bit more than that. But outside of that, I kind of stay away from uh, the, the OWASP world, not on purpose, just I obviously use the materials or whatnot. So I, I probably would dip my toe in a project at least to get the, get the, the sense of, of how awesome or terrible, whatever one it is, is, but, uh, I don't know. Um, I'm not on any lists right now, so maybe I should just stay undercover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, so, you know, I like it, for those of those, the, you that aren't familiar, Kevin and I have worked on like the mobile app side for quite a while and we've worked together and, you know, we're constantly bouncing stuff off each other. But like, from my perspective, the mobile top 10, especially the, the first couple iterations were pretty just willy nilly, right? I, I remember one of them and uh, probably in the 2013 list was basically, you know, number 10 was the OWASP top 10, basically what, it, right? You know, it was like, all right, so you have these nine things and then you have the OWASP top 10 which is valid. Um, I always struggle with some of those that are further on down the list, right? Really like, hey, am I going to go in and tell someone that they're like, uh, that they need to implement reverse engineering protection on their, you know, little application, you know? And, yeah, I get it. 
Um, but I, I, I have a hard time saying, hey, this is one of the top 10 things that your company should worry about, right? Hey, may, maybe if you are doing a mobile game and that's where all of your revenue is coming from, mm -hmm. yeah, let's have that discussion. But most of the things that I look at, I'm like, hey, this is a reincarnation of your, of your, your, your ordering application online. Um, reverse engineering, it doesn't really buy you anything, the cost of that. So me pulling it straight out of the OWASP top 10 and dropping it into a report, doesn't make any sense, at least for the majority of my clients. I don't know if you found the same thing. Uh, have you, or is it, you know, are you running into places where it's been wildly appropriate? No, I, I completely agree. Um, it, like, for instance, one one big thing that we we kind of always call out, and, and I know you've talked uh, on other times in the podcast, Seth, is uh, like cert pinning, right? It's something yeah. that we, we we constantly talk about in, in the mobile world, and and in reality that is a protection that we don't really have in the web world. Um, obviously HPKP was a thing and it, it's kind of gone, uh, well, it's been deprecated by Google. So Google is, is the, the top market share in, in that world. But um, that would be like a, a for instance, right? So you don't have the protection in your web world. And if there isn't anything that extra that your mobile app is exposing that your web application doesn't, then is that really something that should be on the top of your list of implementing, right? Obviously, the um, the threat model of a mobile device is a little bit different because you are jumping on airport Wi-Fis and things like that. But at the end of the day, it is very difficult to get a um, a CA rogue CA installed on a mobile device on on Android, particularly. Um, yeah, it's very very difficult without root access. So um, that would be a for instance that I would say, right? That that like. Are you properly allocating your time in the mobile space to cover all of these different things, uh, specifically for the mobile top 10, if you're not doing the same in, in your web world, right? And I think that kind of plays into what you were just saying as far as um, like reverse engineering. Like if there's no intellectual property in your mobile app, it's just calling APIs and those APIs are findable anyway, why are you spending X amount of dollars or energy or, or um, what's the the Dex guard cost for Dex guard is 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 very very high. Uh, yeah. so if you're spending the money for that, you got to look back at, at your budget and say, okay, well, what are we getting out of that? Um, is it just the the uh, decompiled protections? Is it the the jailbreak? Another one is jailbreak protection. I've seen a lot of people spend a lot of time, uh, and actually, Bill Semp just just hit me up on Twitter, or probably not me specifically, but just threw a question out on Twitter a few weeks ago, like, how does an iOS dev test jailbreak detection if they don't have a jailbroken device. It's like, well, maybe you could add a Frida gadget that will allow you to install <laughs> it into a specific app, and then you can use another Frida gadget to bypass jailbreak detection, and if it gets flagged, then you know that, you know, I started going down this rabbit hole, but in reality, you can't. But what does jailbreak detection really get you if you don't have anything that's very sensitive like intellectual property in a game or, or something that's being heavily client side um, driven, right, is, is really yeah. what it comes down to. Yeah, the client side protection, the, the, the client side protections, I, you know, that, that, that's where it comes down to you know, me a lot of times saying, oh, crap, I don't, I don't know if this is really worth it, right? Like, I, 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 you know, we all tend to do kind of a risk profile of an application. Like, what is it? Who's attacking this application? What are trying? What are they trying to get out of it? Um, and uh, most of the time, it has to do with the backend APIs, right? It's another way to talk to you know this 
this online store and if I can you know get a gift card for free or something like that that's still going to happen through the backend API even if I manipulate it on the on the client side I still have to submit that somewhere to actually get some information or get something out of that uh, retailer and so I, I like I, I yeah I, I go back and forth even something as simple as certificate pinning um, like we we know how hard it is to actually install CAs and bypass certificate pinning on even jailbroken devices. It's an incredibly difficult process. Uh, and your general, like your, like most mobile apps are never gonna run through, are never gonna be threatened by that, right? Yeah. It, it's just it's just not a possibility. It's, ne it's not gonna happen. Someone's not gonna install a rogue CA on a Starbucks, like the, the Google Starbucks network. It's just, it doesn't happen anymore. It absolutely, if it's talking over HTTP, that's a different story, right? You shouldn't be broadcasting stuff over port 80 um, or in plain text at all. But yeah, cert pinning is one of those that, I, that I've kind of backed off on. I know a couple of years ago, we hit it pretty hard, um, but I, I, I just don't see the same risk level there as I did at the time. Uh, given the given the platforms themselves and given them the, the devices themselves, yeah. it's it's been like oh sorry go ahead. I was just gonna say I remember I remember uh, Jerry uh, Gamlin hit me up. He was doing some some mobile testing at some point in time, and he said, "Hey Kevin, I just I just bought a Samsung Galaxy Nine or something like that. Um, you know what what are your thoughts?" And I said, "Return it. Don't if you want to do <laughs> mobile security testing with it, you can't install a CA without." rooted yeah. access and you can't get root on a Samsung device until someone finds an exploit. I, I said return, and I think I honestly, you can ask him, but I'm pretty sure he did end up getting like a pixel or something like that because he wanted to use it for testing and he couldn't get a uh, root CA installed. Um, it's, it's pretty, I have, I have a, another blog post out there about getting a root CA installed in, in NuGet or above. It's, it's not a trivial task, um, so anyway. No, no, I like you've got to, yeah, the way that you have to mount the <clears throat> the root file system and actually modify the CA file, it's not an easy thing, right? Exactly. I, and I do use that blog post, right? That's the one that I refer back to when I'm like, oh crap, I, you know, I've got a new device and I need to run through this again. Right. How do I do that? You know, but um, oh, speaking of which, right? Oh, sorry, Ken, you were going to yeah. ask something. I don't want to. Oh, no, no, no. I was just going to, because, you know, it's been like six years for me since I did mobile application testing. Um, but the one thing when we're going back to like reversing the app, the 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 one thing, and I don't remember exactly why this, this came, you guys have the uh, situation where mobile apps sign their requests off to an API. I have one that I regularly test that has that feature. Um, that's the only one I, I, I've seen, even in my personal time, even in just, just fiddling around, I don't see that very often at all. And even the one that I know does it, um, I don't know if they give me a, a debug version of the app or something like that, it's not enforced. So I don't even have to deal uh, with it. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, cause I was gonna say, I mean, I'm not sure how relevant or how prevalent it is uh, these days, but that's the only thing I could think of is like, um, that was sort of, I'm not sure if that was for authorization. Maybe that was for authorization. Like, you know how with S3 buckets, like if you want to request some of the data or some some data and it's a lockdown policy, you have to sign the URL. So you get this like cryptographically long uh, URL and you can hit that for however long the signature is good for. Um, 
I saw that with mobile apps and I, you know, I wasn't sure like, I mean, I guess if you, well, these mobile apps probably store the the secrets in plain text anyways, right? So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, what it all comes down to is jailbreak detection, cert pinning, um, sign requests, uh, anything that that's um, on, done on the client, right? If you have the, the wherewithal, you understand enough, you have the access, you can dump memory, you can uh, get to the, the, the uh, shared prefs, you can get to the keychain, you can get to all these different, you know, the Android key store. I just saw a blog post a, a couple nights ago, actually, and it was on VMware, Oracle's, um, uh, you know, the, the change it uh, key they use everywhere. That is the yeah. key for the key store for the VMware Fusion or whatever VMware um, uh, mobile app. And what they do is they basically have their own CA list and it's in the, it's in an Android key store in the Android app and the, the key store password is change it. And someone, someone went through all this work. They were, they're trying to middle the app. They did all this and they're like, hey, don't do what I did. Just open the key store, use the password, change it, add your CA to that key store, and, and you're good to go. But the moral of the story is you have access. You have root access or, or a jailbroken device, and you can modify anything on the file system, anything you want, dump dump the key store, all this, this stuff. So anything that's applied at the client side is probably not sufficient enough to keep really, really sophisticated attackers at bay. Um, and is probably overkill for the vast majority um, of, of what you're trying to protect against. So it's, I don't know, I'm not saying it's, it's useless, obviously defense in depth, all that good stuff, but um, you know, like, like you mentioned, can signs, signed uh, API requests or, or whatnot. There's some functionality within the app that does that. There's secrets or keys or whatnot that have to be embedded to do that. So unless you're pulling it out from one request and passing it to another, which could obviously be extracted as well, it's, it's just another hurdle. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and I, I think we all know that obfuscating is never going to be a foolproof sure. plan. So that's not necessarily something I'd advise assigning, signing the request and authorizing based off of that, but uh, just a more of a curiosity thing to hear your uh, input and also to see if that's something that happens these days. So I don't, thank you. I, absolutely. I, I agree with you. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do. It definitely adds complexity um but seth i don't do you see that very often i don't see it very often no i like i'm trying to think if i've seen stuff that actually signs requests um there's yeah, been a I've, couple I've apps that do, do something that, that do you know that do some strange stuff before they send a request off um but that, like I, I mean with free to instrumentation it's very easy to actually initiate another request, right? You may not be able to replay something using burp without figuring out exactly how they're, they're doing that, that signature. Um, I, there was one, like I'm thinking about, there was one within the past year that I looked at that was doing something like that, but it was like, it was, it was a gray box. It was an open, like we had access to the source on the server side. And so we just, you know, created a little burp, you know, Python script that would generate, yeah, yeah would, that would generate those requests for us and we could do the same testing. So it, like, it, I'm sure we could have done the same thing just looking at the mobile app as well um, or instrumenting it through the mobile app using Frida. Um, so it's not, but it's not super common. I mean, that's one, one in the last probably 20, 25 mobile app assessments that I've done that I actually saw something that was like that. So, okay. 
Cool. Yeah, no, I've, I feel like I've run the gamut of crappy situations where you have to create an extension in burp to like, not only for sign parameters, but also if like the content comes back in some compressed way or some stupid, you know, yeah. uh, proprietary protocol garbage. Yep. So I don't know Which if you means- guys run across that with like proprietary like protocols and having to, or is it just pretty easy, just straight up HTTP all the time? Uh, it's mostly HTTPS, right? Uh, the, that's the majority. Um, I do see some web sockets, uh, but not a lot of that either. It's mostly just a straight HTTPS, unless there's some specific reason or something they're looking for out of web sockets. Uh, you know, it's either you know a, a RESTful endpoint or you know some SOAP request, some XML request. That's that's typically what it is. I don't know. Do you see much else besides that? Kevin? In the IoT world, you know, definitely, you know, there's, there's, you know, all the different like MQTT and all the different, uh, um, you know, lightweight protocols. And I usually use, if you're not familiar with it, the Nope uh, Burp plugin uh, or extension, which is the non HTTP uh, or HTTP extension, I think, Nope, whatever Nope stands for. Uh, <laughs> and uh, basically it, it will stand up a DNS or, or a, um, uh, yeah, it'll, it'll uh, stand up a, it'll, it'll capture your packets coming in and then you can do all kinds of different, uh, like raw TCP handling rules and, and all kinds of good stuff. It's, it's a really, you know, basically if you can't edit the Etsy host file on, on a IOT device or a mobile device and you're, and you're like, how is this thing talking? Where, what IPs is it going to? Where is it coming from? But it's non HTTP. Nope is a really good, uh, uh, extension to use, you know, for that, or even just like MITM proxy or something like that, 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 um, can handle non-HTTP a little bit better than say like a burp or a zap or, or fiddler, yeah. you know, whatnot. But, um, you know, outside of that, definitely, you know, web sockets, one thing Ken, that, that you mentioned as far as, as doing some, some wacky stuff, I've seen more and more in the, um, the Android world with okay HTTP that kind of by default, everything's G zipped. Uh, so that can, you know, add some complexity as far as geez, you know, decompressing and altering and, and the, uh, burp macros can help with that. But there's also like an extended macro, uh, extension that I use in burp, which is helpful too, because you can basically write different regex rules to pull stuff out and, and do some things. And then, you know, like multi-step macros compared to like the default burp macro is a little bit of a kludge. So. Yeah, GZIP compression was one of the, I mean, not proprietary, but you know yeah. what I mean? Like it's one of those added, you know, WTF compression things uh, or compression protocols that makes it difficult to do what you got to do. So, yeah, I know like um, specifically like Crashlytics in, in the analytics platform, they they do GZIP, but they do it in a multi-part form. So even if you have like uh, uh, the GZIP, uh, automatic extension in burp that will automatically decompress that for you because it's in the middle of a multi-part form. It doesn't see that encoding and it won't decrypt it for you. So it adds another you know layer on, on top of it, which is uh, again, fun. Yeah. That's why, I mean, then this is why I'm not, um, uh, I gave up on the mobile, <laughs> the mobile world. <laughs> so screw it. This is difficult. I don't feel like doing this. It's a lot of work. Yeah, it, it, it feels like every six months there's another hoop that we've got to jump through to actually do testing. Right? Along those lines, I was going to ask kind of what your current you know testing platforms look like, Kevin. Like what what physical devices are you currently using for the testing? That is a loaded question. Uh, last week I yes. <laughs> last week I tested um, something and and it required some. I, I kid you not, I used seven different 
uh, rooted or jailbroken devices for, for one assessment. And uh, something happened and I was like, hey, this isn't working. And I emailed the, the, the guy that came back to me and I said, that's a really weird edge case. We don't know why that wouldn't work. And then I said, oh wait, I'm on my seventh device. I forgot to put a passcode on this device. That's why that didn't work. But because I'm on my nth device over here, I didn't realize that this one isn't set up like all the rest of them were. But anyway, that aside. Um, yeah, so I have currently in my, in my uh, testing repertoire, I have um, three jailbroken iOS devices with a fourth sitting on the shelf. Just when the day comes that I brick one of these, I can, I can bring it in uh, uh, off the shelf. And then I also have three Android devices, two of which are rooted, um, one on Pi, one on 7, uh, uh, Nougat, and then one completely stock. It's on Marshmallow because Marshmallow was the last one that you could add a CA, but not have root. So it's yeah. completely stock, but it does have my burp CA. And I use that as a control device. So for apps that do certain types of checking for jailbreak or this or that, I can pull out that bad boy and see if it's just jailbreak detection or you can see if it's something and it's not, um, it's not, uh, yeah, that's basically my control device is, is what it comes out down to be. So, uh, but yeah, I have all these different devices, uh, all these different tools. Uh, I use Frida heavily. Um, I use Objection from SensePost, really awesome set of set of uh, Frida hooks. Um, if you just Google, it's on, it's on GitHub, open source, uh, SensePost. I, I forget the author. I know some of the, the folks over there, uh, like uh, it was Rogan and, and uh, Dominic White. But it wasn't either two of those guys. It was another guy from SensePost. But um, it's a really cool Python 3 tool that basically just strings a bunch of the different Frida hooks together. You can bypass jailbreak or root detection. You can bypass TLS pinning, you can um, uh, you know hook different methods, class dump, all that fun stuff. It's just basically a um, concatenation of a bunch of different Frida hooks that are out there on the uh, the Frida um, store. And then I also use Passion Fruit, which is a, a GUI on top of the same hooks, but it's it's iOS specifically. But it's it's really really well done. Um, uh, NPM GUI, uh, Node GUI, uh, excuse me. That's uh, um, basically does the same things, but it's, it's a good to look at. <laughs> <laughs> it looks nice on your, yeah. your Mac desktop. Is that what you, yeah, exactly. Uh, no, that's a, like, yeah, that, that, that's useful to hear, right? Like the, the number of devices that I have sitting there that I just leave powered on all the time because I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that, okay, if I turn off this, you know, this, this iOS, what, 10, <clears throat> that's got a jailbreak that I know for certain works and all my hooks and everything is on there. Um, the next time that I boot that up, it may or may not work from a testing perspective. That's what scares me is there's not a better way to do that. Right. If I have access to the source code, it's another thing like doing the mapping that we were talking about with Ken earlier, uh, you know, that works out and I can run, I, you know, I can run code on any device that I want, but yeah. Yeah. yeah you, so, you you teased me a few times coming into this, but I, I did have a jailbroken device that was powered on, up and running for 311 days, and I just had to restart it. Um, and I, I actually, the reason I know that is because when the, um, what's the, the, the most popular jailbreak right now? Uh, Electra. When the Electra jailbreak came out, everyone was given the, the author Coolstar shit about it being buggy, oh, resets this. The jailbreak community is the worst community. You can pick any community <laughs> out there, even InfoSec. 
Jailbreak is 10 times worse than the InfoSec community. It's terrible. Everyone wants something for nothing. And as soon as their one specific thing doesn't work, they're going to just beat you to death on it. And as soon as the next version comes out, they want to know when that support is going to be. I mean, it's, it's such a toxic environment. So I kept this device powered on for 311 days without reboots, without anything, just to show that it was that jailbreak was so stable. I did all my testing on that device without rebooting it for just shy of a year. I wanted to make it to 365 just so I could throw that screenshot out and say, this hasn't been rebooted for a year. And uh, it was it was like, it was some network issue. It wasn't even, you know, something wouldn't work network related. And I was like, I'm gonna have to reboot. Something had finally dropped on it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and that's, I, I, I mean, I feel like that's pretty standard, right? Is, you know, hey, we keep these, we, we keep everything kind of up and powered and make sure that we don't have any problems as we're moving forward. Cause you never know when one of those tests is gonna come along and where that is kind of our livelihood. Yeah. It's, you know, it directly affects like how I'm gonna actually be able to perform and give, you know, feedback to clients. Um, on the Android side, you know, is there are there specific devices that you recommend, whether that's like the Google Pixel or you know what what is your current like sweet spot there with those? I do Pixels, Pixels from the Google Store. Uh, don't do Pixels from Verizon. Uh, although I did buy one, I think Refurb at one point in time, uh, Corsi, and I went back and forth on this, and there was like between the Pixel One and the Pixel Two, you could still unlock the the, the um, OEM lock from Verizon but something changed from like one to two. And if you got the, the second version or something like that, you couldn't. So it was kind of weird. Uh, but if you get them from the Google store, you can un unlock their bootloader and, and that, all that fun stuff. Um, one plus devices are good. Uh, from what I hear, I don't have any, uh, but uh, I know some folks who test with one plus devices and you can unlock the bootloader and flash all kinds of ROMs and, and do all that fun stuff and, and, and get root on them. Um, and then actually, completely in, in the face of um, Motorola, I'm sorry, in the face of Samsung, Motorola devices, you can actually go on their site and put in a request to, to get an unlocked bootloader. It's only for a portion of their devices. So like some devices, like prepaid devices, you can't get unlocked because of, of you know, the fact they're giving those things away for nothing. But um, yeah, I mean, I, there's like there's certain OEMs that are are not very good to work with, and there are certain ones or, or certain types of devices that are really good to work with. I kind of just stick with the pixels from Google because you kind of just know that you pay a premium, but it's going to work, and you get it, and it's going to be supported for X number of of uh, security patches and X number of uh, main releases, and you don't have to think about it. So yeah. Yeah, and that makes sense, right? Uh, like I was going to say, uh, the, I was going to bring up Motorola because I've got like one of their, it's a couple of years old, like a G5 Plus or something like that. But that, that's exactly what it was. So if, if like anyone listening, if you're looking for Android devices, before you buy anything, XDA developers will tell you what the status of root is with those devices. And if you haven't checked that, don't buy it. Because I like I've returned devices before because I'm like, hey, that's a sweet deal. You're walking through, you know, Costco or Sam's Club, and you're like, sweet. And you grab it, and it's like, uh, never mind. I can't do anything with this. Um, but Samsung is bad. Is yeah, that, that's one that's been hit or miss depending on who's found an actual like flaw or vulnerability mm -hmm. to act, to root those devices. Um, but Pixels, I, you know, I, I mean, it sounds like you've done similar paths to what I do, right? Uh, which is not surprising, you know, given what what we're trying to accomplish. So, yeah, I just wondered. Um, so, from a 
Frida perspective, right? You were talking passion for it. You're talking objection. Um, what does your what does your normal workflow look like when you are injecting an application? Like, what is it that you're trying to accomplish with those Frida, uh, or with Frida, or with objection that you couldn't without it? Just give us a short rundown. This is more kind of AppSec minity, but I think it would be useful for people to know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, kind of the 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 hooks that are, have been created or published, especially on the Frida.re, the code share site, or the um, like, the, the the hooks that are integrated into Passion Fruit or integrated into um, Objection are kind of there for a reason because they're pretty popular and the things that people want to do. So, for instance, bypassing TLS pinning, um, dumping out the contents of the iOS keychain. Um, uh, Class dump, you know, dumping all the all the classes. Uh, so for sp specifically for like iOS, if an app is encrypted and you can't, you know, decrypt it with Clutch or something like that and get the contents, it's more difficult to um, decompile a, an IPA than it is a, a, an APK. So being able to dump the class, the classes and methods and and, and all that fun stuff from iOS uh, at runtime is is easier. So using a, a tool like Frida to do that. Uh, there's also uh, and and um, kind of my mentor in, in the mobile space, space David Lindner, uh, speaks. He's spoken at this at length. But certain types of touch ID uh, or face ID authentication, you can have um, local user context, and depending on how that's implemented, you can actually bypass touch ID uh, if you call that that method directly. So. Um, you know that's something you can do. There's a, there's a hook built right into objection to bypass Touch ID uh, for a, like locking of a specific app, not unlocking the device. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hate to, to diminish it, but if there's a hook made for it already, there's probably a good reason for it because a lot of people use it for that. But the cool thing about Frida is it's infinitely extendable. You can create it, you know, uses JavaScript or Python to, to create your own kind of special thing. And if the app does a certain thing that you need to invoke, you can probably use Frida to um, call that method or, or, or uh, do some type of uh, function on, on the app in the app. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so uh, like I, I posted some links to passion fruit and to objection. I mean, this is a good place to start for Frida because it is it is more approachable. Uh, I know when you and I first started using Frida, it was all just kind of okay. It's it's set up now. Go to town, and you'd have to actually write code to get anything back out, right? Absolutely. Um, so uh, you know, but that console is very powerful, right? It, that's the, that, that's the whole idea is you want to be able to get access to those internals in the mobile device as it's running the application, whatever it's doing and instrument it from that perspective, rather than from the UI itself. There's a lot that gets exposed that we don't necessarily see. Yeah. Another um, one, I'm sorry, just, just to mention it quickly, another one is dumping of RAM. So there's a there's a tool called Free Dump, um, which is, I believe it's just Python and, and invokes uh, uh, Frida. And uh, it will actually dump the RAM of the device while it's running iOS or Android. So say even if you're like, not in the code. I'm not. I'm not going to put it anywhere. It's going to be run at runtime, RAM only. No one's going to see it. I'm going to wipe it. If a user or attacker or um, security guru dumps the RAM at the right time, they can extract private keys. They can extract that kind of stuff that um, you know was encrypted or, or was never you know even touching disk at any point in time in, in a mobile app. So that's another one. Uh, free dump, uh, which is a way to dump RAM. Yeah. <clears throat> Cool. Yeah, and I, I mean, the more that we talk about it, uh, it like, I, I remember when mobile apps 
you know, when Moabs first started coming out, we started testing them. The whole approach was, oh, guess what? It is just a thick client application. So anything that we could do with even your browser as it's running on a, you know, on a desktop, that's the same thing that we're looking at for an app. And we're looking for the ways to actually do that inside of the mobile ecosystem. Uh, it used to be really easy to get in and actually get access to that. And that's why we're so afraid of, you know, jailbreaks and things changing and upgrading devices, because if we lose that access, it's very difficult to instrument. Um, even then, I mean, Frida does run somewhat on an unjailbroken device. Uh, you know, it's not quite as powerful because it doesn't have root access like we would like, uh, but there are still some things that we can do with it. Yep. Cool. Uh, let's see. I don't know if we've had any questions yet. No, I haven't seen any questions pop in. Um, but, you know, I'm pretty much sitting back like, hmm, this is all very interesting. And, uh, <laughs> Ken's listening listening to our pain. That's basically what it is, right? You know, sitting on his, like, <clears throat> his beach over there at GitHub, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, I, uh, yeah, so for, for me, I mean, like, I haven't done it not because I didn't want to. I was joking before. It was just, it wasn't something, mobile wasn't something that we, um, I guess early on at uh, Invisium, we we had mobile, but as I as we progressed, you know, I didn't tap into the mobile as much. I'm doing that direct work. So um, then after, you know, was GitHub. So I feel a little lost, but it's nice to hear you guys talk about all this stuff. Do you guys, do you know, can do you guys have any mobile apps at GitHub that are public? No, no public uh, apps. Do you have like a Mac OS client? Uh, yes, we do have client. a Yeah, we do have a GitHub desktop client, correct? Yeah. So are you, um, on that side, are you getting involved with actually testing like that thick client as well? Or is it some other team that actually deals with that? Uh, in terms of testing it, um, so it's not necessarily like one of our core. Um, I actually, I should probably, I don't want to take too long on this, but one of the things I really like about my uh, my boss is that, um, and the team in general and their approach is the scope of what we assess. It's very specific. I, Seth, you and I, when we teach the course, we we were just talking about this at AppSec Cali, how we had folks who, who were like, oh yeah, we've got this many hundreds or thousands of apps and these small teams do these assessments. Well, there's your first problem. Your scope is wrong, in my opinion. Um, so our scope is very narrow. Uh, it's only what we, you know, the 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 most important things that the money makers right now. So um, no, I don't do a ton of assessments on it. That's a long winded way of saying uh, we prioritize our efforts elsewhere. Yeah, very well, it makes sense. to say it. <laughs> it makes sense because it's like. I mean, they're calling the same GitHub infrastructure to actually make the calls from the desktop client, right? I mean, so you're securing the back end and yeah. Yeah. And you're kind of moving on, right? And, and and most of the serious vulnerabilities that I see with mobile apps are in that space. It's somewhere between, you know, the mobile app and the, you know, the, the server itself. I don't see as much just like, uh, I mean, I still see stuff stuff push into preferences or to defaults that shouldn't be there, but it's not like it was, you know, five, 
even, you know, five years ago where you're seeing all sorts of cool AWS keys and things like that, uh, hard coded in an application. It's, you know, people are protecting things with the keychains and the key stores like they should be. And so it's all about, hey, how is it interacting with that back end? Because that's where most of the risk exists. Yeah, I mean, and to be clear, you know, depending on the type, right? Like I say that because I won't get into it, but legitimate remote code execution, like, you know, that's something we'll, we'll act on, right? Um, in terms of a, a client goes. And I think that that's that brings up an interesting, and I don't know necessarily if this is the right episode for it, but um, whatever, I'll bring it up. Uh, you've got these desktop apps now that are essentially running, you know, um, like a mini web browser on your as a as a client on your uh, on your machine and so basic xss basically can turn into remote code execution yeah you know, I, I don't know if I you guys kind of, i mean we, we do we see the same thing i mean you're talking react native that's exactly what happens with react native applications on uh, mobile apps right if you find xss in a react native application it's just like an electron app that's wrapped for a desktop and, game over because you, you can execute basically whatever you want. Right. I, I mean, am I wrong on that, Kevin? No. And I think kind of to, to dovetail into what Ken was saying, as far as like electron on electron apps, you, you have folks like Tavis Ormody or looking at like these chromium forks that, that uh, have crazy, you know, risky hard coded this or exposed debugging that and, and, you know, or they, they fork this really old version, which is, 50 patch cycles behind or whatever the case is, it's like there's definitely ways to, to do that badly. Too. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I think some folks are like, well, Chrome is, is the, the most secure. I don't wanna say the most secure, but it, the Chrome has its advantages and, and going down the Electron route has its advantages cross platform. And um, you know, as long as you have the memory to run all these different apps, you're, you're, uh, you're Sorry, again. <laughs> no, no, I agree. I because the memory, just like I, yeah. I have, I go, love go Slack. Slack. <laughs> yeah, let me. I, that was what I was gonna say. I love Slack, but man, does it kill my. Uh, it just it spikes. Um, although I'm not sure if that's happened in the last week or two, but yeah, it usually does. It usually uh, the last memory. week or two. Yeah, it's been stable <laughs> for so long. <laughs> yeah, that's one. I'll of take. The... I'll take what I can get. I'm not as. Uh, Picky as apparently the um, jailbroke, uh, jailbroken community is, but um, it's in terms of like, yeah, Electron and Chromium. The thing with those is like they, they that doesn't they don't ship necessarily like they're secure, right? They, they're and often their defaults are not secure. So it's up to the actual individual implementers to to sort of lock things down. And you'll see that that doesn't I mean clearly if you watch bug bounties or you catch up on security news, you know, you can, you can see that doesn't, they're often not configured as securely as they uh, could be these, the, the actual imp people that are implementing um, Chromium or Electron or something like that. So read the manual. Wait, wait, you mean secure by default is, is not a thing in that space? Is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's purposefully, you know, very flexible, um, so yeah, you 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 kind of have, to, and this like that's always the interesting thing too is dealing with different protocol handlers and like like what protocol handlers are allowed and you know locking that down um, so that you can't just like call local files or something like that. It's always some fun stuff. So client apps, I don't 
Are you guys testing any client apps at the moment or have you done any testing, let's say in the past few years of not mobile apps, but just client apps that are using web standards? Kevin? Yeah. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Very recently. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, um, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I don't have much to add. But I, I am, I am doing that and it's, uh, you know, pretty, pretty common. I mean, I think you guys have, you know, like React Native and, and, and Chromium and, uh, uh, uh Electron are obviously the, the, the big hitters. So yeah. assuming you found, so assuming you found some findings, uh, you you found some vulnerabilities, um, can you give a feel for like the percentage of what was just not setting a default configuration correctly or what was just baked in like vulnerabilities, like the way that the app was built? So I guess it depends on, on where, how can I say this? So obviously every, every, assessor every auditor every firm has their has their niches and, and mine is definitely more towards web and, and mobile uh so i'm not a, a tavis Harmony as far as is uh finding some of the awesome findings he had or, or any of the folks you know in, in in that region so you know i i will i will give you that grain of salt first but as far as as the kind of things that, that i found uh or tend to find in in those i think it it kind of goes to um, your typical control areas of, of what you're looking for in, in, in whatever OS that it's running on as far as like, you know, file level permissions and things like that. But I, I honestly can't say as far as whether those were secure defaults uh, or, or framework related as far as like a percentage versus what um, this first party code or, or configuration level or, or whatnot. So um, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, I, and honestly, we're not building stats off anecdotes, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, we leave that to uh, larger bodies of governing authorities. Kind of a dig. Um, but yeah, so, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I was just curious anecdotally, you know, if you had a, a feel for that. So, cool. Yeah, yeah but I, no, I mean, yeah, it's Personally, interesting. I, yeah, I haven't done a ton of those, right? Uh, it's been a few years, right? When I was working at the bank, we did a lot more thick client application stuff because I mean that was all their, you know, everything they were running on the teller desktops and things like that was something that we were reviewing on an annual basis. <clears throat> so you got pretty good at actually dumping memory and things like that to see what was going on with them. But it, but I wonder, I mean, with Electron and some of the newer frameworks, there's a lot. I feel like that that like the the attack surface of those is larger than it was on a thick client application, right? Something that's written on, you know, using Windows APIs and C or C++, you know, there, there's only so much that you can actually do with that. But it's, it's the second that you open up that whole JavaScript side of things and another interpreter and SSRF and XSS becomes remote code execution. There's just like, we've opened up this world because of the way that we're designing those applications that wasn't there before. You know, Seth, my favorite client app that I ever tested was with, uh, with, I mean, not with you, but I worked, we worked at the same company, Fishnet. Um, there was this client app. So I went to the, the, the client site and they were purchasing, they have like this whole department where it's a huge company, billion dollar, billions of dollars company. 
Um, and they've got this whole department where they approve third-party apps to be installed on machines and be used. And so this app, it literally was like this. First of all, I did not know that um, like financials could be as complicated as they are, but that was essentially the what this app did. It was like a financials type app. Anyways, um, when I say financials, I mean like uh, compensation financially because for... Real quick for like regular W two person and employee, uh, yeah, you have some benefits, okay. But if you're like uh, executive of a billions of dollar company, your compensation gets super uh, uh, complicated. So, anyways, this C sharp C sharp app that was its business purpose, but all it did was it just sent SQL queries directly to a Microsoft SQL server in clear text. Uh, authentication, obviously, like. You just send as many times as you want the, the username, password combination, um, all kinds of fun stuff. But at the end of the day, you're also making direct queries on a SQL server about various uh, executive staffs, um, like compensation packages. This is just insane. There's no separation. So uh, yeah, we ended up on that one getting in on a call with the uh, the makers of that software. But yeah, you guys got any similar crazy stories like that? Like things are just, just bizarre. Yeah, I, I mean, you talk about SQL servers, right? Like, I've seen quite a few <clears throat> thick client applications. Like, I, I mean, so I grew up in my security career at a bank, and the bank had been around for years and years. And so half of, like, these thick client applications would just access a share, pull up, like, an Excel doc, make changes to it and then store it back out, right? So there, there's no permissions outside of, can I access this share? Yes, all right. And so <laughs> like, and like, it was just like completely wild. And then you would have the, the mainframe accessing that same or like a script accessing that same spreadsheet and pushing values straight into the, like the main ledger for the bank, right? It's ledger and, database. And it's <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> so, and it's like, okay, if the one lady that you know runs this application uh, happens to be sick for two weeks, then nobody, you know, uh, the bank's behind by two weeks because no one else actually knows how to run that process or it's not installed on their machine. And, and, and like this, this was not an uncommon experience, right? We would have someone retire and they would have to spend six figures to replace what that person was doing because this little old lady was critical to the operations of the bank, right? And yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, I, so, that's, that's pretty I, typical. I mean, the, like the people don't understand the crazy as, especially as a consultant, the crazy crap that you come up, uh, come across like the, um, just the weird, bizarre, esoteric, how is this a thing, uh, type applications you come across. And yeah, like we all, we always talk about the, like the, the web and mobile apps. We don't re we don't generally talk much about the really weird. And I feel like that's a, the, episode is just the weird shit that you come across as a consultant. Yeah, I, I, I happen to, you, you talked about asset inventory last week and you just hit on it a little bit today. I happen to work for um, the first bank in the United States um, and uh, then another top 10, like current top 10 bank. Um, and the fact of the matter is when you have, you know, the, we talk about early adopters in today's standards, but at the, at the end of the day, banks are historically, um, not early adopters, but they've adopted over time because, you know, whether you know, they just have to run, right? So I end up being kind of 
uh, Adorn, the, the guy who gets the weird projects because I'm I'm used to just like, okay, well, this week I, I need to look at this or this next week I need to look at that. And, you know, I've made friends with um, uh, Phil and Chad, uh, Big Indian Smalls and, and Soldier of Fortran because I had to test mainframe stuff. So I went to some mainframe classes and I took their their mainframe, uh, evil mainframe class a, a couple years ago. And then I, I next week I jump on an IoT thing because, you know, the bank's Teller system was talking to this system and had to print out this thing over there. And then the next week, I, you know, so at the end of the day, uh, I totally agree with you guys. It's I've seen some incredibly crazy stuff. Um, and the fact of the matter is, that's just like one nth of the thousands of application inventory that that bank or institution, whatever the case may be, needs to critically run on a, on a day-to-day basis. And, and like you said, uh, Seth, as far as like user developed technologies, and if this thing happens to get unplugged, that's uh, under someone's desk. And if that's gonna bring the company to its knees, I mean, hopefully historic, I, things have come a long way in the past decade. And it's yeah. been a few years since I've worked at, at an institution. So people are probably laughing at me like, that's not the way things are anymore. But um, it was at one time. And I'm sure there's still places out there that are like that. Oh, you know yeah. that there you know that there are. And, you know, I mean, it, and actually one of those things you just mentioned, which was actually like, it's kind of touching on that is, you know, you, you mentioned that basically maybe people don't know like who all runs this app or like, what it does or whatever, maybe it's one person responsible, but um, kind of segueing into that, one of the things we talk about in, in the course that we give is like, one of your first steps should be opening a file, taking notes and talking to the people that own whatever you're, you've got to test. Cause like you as a consultant, you know, you mentioned basically like one week you're doing something completely different from the next, you've got a quick amount of time, you got to drop in and figure it out and then do a security assessment of it. And that's really like, that's one thing that we push is like, when you have, when you come from that background, you know that the best way to learn something quickly is to talk to the developers. That's the, that's the best thing. That's the easiest way to get up to speed. And then, you know, you obviously do your, your own homework, but just figuring out what it does and how it works and who's responsible for it and whatnot. Those conversations are kind of the, the quickest way to get going. And I've been on, on, both sides of that conversation, like, like, Hey, is I found this, is this thing bad? And like, Oh shit. Yeah. That's terrible. How did you find that? Why did you do that? How could you possibly do that? And I've also been on the, you know, Oh my God, why would you guys do this? This is terrible. I found this thing. And they're like, Kevin, that's nothing. That is absolutely meaningless. You think you're seeing something and you're not seeing what you think you're seeing. You know, I've been on both sides of that, that coin. And, uh, you know, especially as a consultant or an internal, uh, uh, tester, AppSec, uh, you know, InfoSec, whatever case is, you have to be willing to, to ask those questions, eat humble pie when you're wrong and be, you know, say, okay, well, I learned that coming in. I, I thought this was a completely different thing. And now I know it's this thing. I, I learned this protocol, this assessment. And personally, I know most folks have a limited time in consulting because, it, it takes its toll going from week to week and, and learning this and pivoting and learning that and pivoting. I thrive on it because it's just my personality. I love um, just sucking in all that information and, and, and jumping from one thing to another. Um, that said, I've only been doing it for 
maybe six or seven years. So I'm sure maybe at some point in time in the next two decades, I might get tired of it. But um, yeah, it's it's definitely, like you said, Ken, as far as like just asking those questions, coming to people, you know, some people like to hold all those vulnerabilities in and then just release them in a report at the end. And they say, ah, we got you. It's like, no, if you find something, go to those people say, hey, is this, a, is this as big of an issue as it seems to me? Or why can't I do this that I think I should be able to? And having that open line of communication, at least in my opinion, is... is yeah. I mean, I, I wish more consult consultants took that approach. And one thing that's really helpful is when people get you in on their Slack or whatever their team chat is, hopefully Slack and not like some uh, weird proprietary Windows only... <laughs> Chat. Anyways, but once they get you in on like the company chat, you can share a room and ask uh, questions of uh, uh, devs. Like that's the best. That's the best scenario for a consultant. So if you if you are going to have a web app assessment, you're going to have consultants come in. Uh, if you can give them a a room to to chat with some points of contact, advise that you do that. That you take them up on that. Yeah, I mean, worst thing that could happen is you pay a consultancy to come in and they give you more false positives than your public bug bounty or something. You know, like that's that's the last thing you want. You want really, really low sig signal to noise ratio when you pay a consultancy to come in, right? That's the whole point. Um, and, you know, uh, I really strive to, to, to lower that. I really strive to not give someone a bunch of, of um, fodder that they already knew uh, if at all possible, or a bunch of stuff that is false positives or stuff that they don't care about. Like that's, that's really important for me, um, individually, as well as, as happens to be the company that I work for. But it just, it's, you know, that's one piece of advice that I can give. I, I would rather eat that humble pie and delete a finding or deliver a low number of findings or whatever the case may be, but give them something that's actionable than to give a bunch of stuff that they're like, garbage no false positive doesn't matter can't do that this and that well that yeah for sure and like you're trying to meet the objectives of the company so while i advise you don't uh necessarily rely on just developers telling you that's we don't mind but if the security team is saying we know about it and like move on yeah like you definitely definitely should uh should take that approach to make the client happy for sure yeah, that's always it. like, yeah. I mean, you talk about you know building like a space for people to play in when they're when they're doing a, a, a review, and most of those, most of the the effective assessments that I see are definitely the ones where I feed developers a steady stream of, hey, I, this is what I'm seeing. Should I be seeing it? And you'll have to, like, I can't tell you the number of times that they'll come back and they'll be like, or oh, you're looking at this section of code. And I'm like, yeah, they're like, yeah, we haven't gotten back to that. We know that it's vulnerable. So just do your thing. Right. And it's like, all right, you know, I, I like, they know that it exists. We're just going to, we're going to tell them over, but at least it'll get fixed this time. Cause it's going to be in my report. Right. Rather than, Hey, uh, you know, it, it, it's a false positive because of X, Y, and Z. Like if you, if you can short circuit that conversation, it, it goes a long way. Cool. Anyway, um, yeah. So again, Kevin, like we didn't even get to the analytics stuff, and we've been going for you know an hour and fifteen. Right? I, I feel like we always get off on the the mobile tangents, and and Ken just keeps prodding us along on it. So I know, my bad. What what was the? Uh, I mean, you want to? We can go do it for a couple minutes. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's okay. Yeah. 
No, I was just going to say, give a description of what, you know, what you, the research and into analytics, your previous talk on that was. Yeah, the, the TLDR is, I did a talk at uh, B-Sides Cleveland last year and, and actually B-Sides Knoxville. Um, and it was on, uh, the B-Sides Cleveland was recorded. So if you go out to, to Iron Geek site or YouTube, it's, it's out there. But uh, basically the, the idea is that, you know, we have all these apps. They have layers and layers of layers of analytics that are communicating, you know, that are, that are SDKs built into our device, our apps, excuse me. They are transmitting our app data and they're being housed in different analytics databases or, or engines or, or whatnot all over the place. Some of them may be advertising. Some of them may be just, you know, um, uh, the, the marketing folks want to know how long someone's on a certain page or what the click-through rate is or, or whatnot. But anyway, all that said, you have a thick client app and you want to get some data from it, what do you have to do? You have to send that data somewhere and it's stored by a third party. So that is ripe for data leakage. It's ripe for over permissions. Obviously, if, you, if you've been keeping up with the, the news the past few weeks, there was those apps that were like recording the entire screen while you were putting in your credit card, while you were logging with passwords and all that stuff. That's the, the kind of... Um, thing I've seen, I've seen full HTTP requests and responses and auth tokens and private keys and PII data, PCI data being sent to third party. So anyway, the talk is on how you can pull apart apps to see that stuff using Frida, using, uh, you know, decompiling apps and all that fun stuff and what kind of stuff I've seen. And I don't really, I haven't historically gotten into how to protect yourself, but I just submitted to a couple of different conferences kind of an updated version of this talk with more examples, more code, more top 10 or top whatever apps on the app store and talk about mitigations and talk about uh, authentication to these portals and what who's doing good, who's doing bad, that kind of stuff. So anyway, it's, a, it's an interesting trail to start pulling on and, and, and unraveling. And it's definitely something that I have a personal kind of infatuation with. So hopefully uh, if that gets accepted to a couple of the CFPs that I've thrown out there, uh, I'll share more with you guys. And, and yeah, hopefully take a look at last year's because it's it's out there on YouTube. Yeah, let us know if, you know, what else pops up. Uh, you know, obviously we always like to talk about the next couple places that you're going. I don't know, like what you're talking about, like it fits right in like with the code review stuff that we do, right? You know, you always talk about, we always talk about AAA, right? Authentication, authorization and auditing, right? you got to look at what your application is doing from a logging perspective. If you don't know where that data is going, that, this is exactly what happens, right? It, it ends up in crash logs or whatever else and then gets sent to a third party. That's obviously a bad thing when it's a credit card number or credentials or what have you. So and, yeah, and let, let, let us know. And okay, not, to, not to overstress it, but how do the marketing folks get access to that portal with that data in it? You know, or yeah. how do, how, how is, is Crashlytics or Firebase or whatever, how, you know, what, how is that protected? Does that need to, to respect GDPR? And are you rotating that? And are you sanitizing that and all that fun stuff? You're probably not thinking that's directly in scope, but if the SDK is, is, that's installed is pulling really uh, verbose data from your app, probably should be in scope and are you properly looking at that? And one last thing that you, you mentioned earlier is, is just bare bones, make sure that it's going over an encrypted channel because your app could be going over TLS and everything's good and everything's great. And then you have Adobe's marketing cloud that's sending really important, really 
specific you know, uh, regulated data over HTTP. And you've done everything you can for not, right? And I've seen that in, in prod apps, so. Yeah, cool. Well, good. So uh, what other places are you going to be? Like what, I mean, you've got those CFPs out, but yeah. do you have any other conferences or places that people could find you at? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to be at OWASP Snowfrock in Denver on the 14th of March, I believe. Um, talking about Frida, of, fits right into our conversation today. And then on March 30th, I'll be in uh, Greenville, South Carolina with our buddy Tim Tomes. And we're gonna be talking about some new um, research that hasn't been published yet. It's something that I kind of stumbled on and, and brainstormed with Tim on abusing cores uh, to basically make a C2 infrastructure for online brute force attacks using one victim to attack another victim. And uh, it's, it's kind of really, really interesting edge case. So yeah, two talks within the next month coming up and then some CFPs out for uh, like the May timeframe. So we'll see, we'll see if those hit, but. Cool. Awesome. And you can always find, yeah, you can always find Kevin on Twitter uh, at Kev Cody, right? Uh, we'll post that too. Um, but yeah, Kevin, you know, we really appreciate you coming on as always. Uh, it's, it's great catching up. You know, I always, I always enjoy it. Gives me new stuff to dig into for the next mobile assessment that I'm looking at, right? Of course. Um, outside of that, uh, I'll be at B-Side Salt Lake City this week. Uh, if anybody listening, uh, come up and say hi. I'll have absolute AppSec stickers and pins and other stuff. So, um, Ken, anything else that you wanted to list for tonight? No, I'm uh, not going to be anywhere except for local Mocha site, which I need to work on booking the flights for that. But uh, yeah, besides that, I don't have anything scheduled um, until local Mocha site for us. Uh, Kevin, if you haven't already, address and t-shirt size so that I can send that to you since uh, that's on me. We, we, we've got it. I sent it over to you, Kevin. Uh, oh, yeah. no. well, then I'm just terrible and need to get my shit together. So um, sorry about that. Uh, but yeah, so we'll get you the t-shirt out. Um, but, uh, trying to think of anything that we have to, I don't think we have anything to announce, uh, Seth, right? Not, nothing yet. Right. Uh, I mean, obviously like we're, we're looking at other places to take our, you know, Seth and Ken's excellent adventures and secure code review. So, um, we've got some CFTs out for that. Uh, we'll let people know once those pop up and actually talking about doing some independent classes as well. Cause there's been some interest. So, uh, if you're interested, hit us up on Twitter or join our Slack channel. Find us at absoluteappsec.com. Uh, otherwise, I guess we'll see everybody next week. Yeah, and uh, we'll have Omer, Omer Levi Hevroni. Hopefully, I'm not totally butchering that. Um, but he was just at AppSec Cali giving a talk. Uh, he'll be on next week, and um, yeah, I think it'll be a, I think it'll be a good time and. Uh, uh, yeah, thanks for joining, I guess, would be the last thing I say. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.